This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is David Rutledge. Welcome to the Philosopher's Zone for another week. And welcome to the second in a two-part series on beauty and ugliness and what happens when qualities like beauty and ugliness take on moral significance, like when you feel you have a responsibility to be as beautiful as you possibly can, but also what happens when that moral imperative gets a whole lot of technology behind it, technology that really hasn't had the ethical wrinkles ironed out of it yet. You might be aware of the existence of beauty apps. You might have even used beauty apps. But for anyone who hasn't come across them, beauty apps are smartphone apps that are used to analyse your facial appearance, evaluate or rate that facial appearance, and then maybe enhance it. So, like, you'll take a selfie on your phone and then launch the app, which will use filters and skin smoothing tools. It might change the shape of your face by altering the length of the chin or the width of the nose or whatever it is. And that's all fine and fun. The problem is that these apps are increasingly using artificial intelligence to do what they do. And AI is not some sort of transcultural, value-free process that operates according to an objective metric of beauty. The factors that drive AI and that play into whatever decisions it might make about how nice your face should look, that's all a bit of a worry. So this week, we're going to be hearing from Kate Crawford, who's been a writer and researcher on AI for some years now. Kate Crawford is everywhere. She's a principal researcher at Microsoft. She's a visiting professor at the MIT Center for Civic Media. She's a senior fellow at the Information Law Institute at New York University. And she's an associate professor in journalism and media research at the University of New South Wales. Her most recent book is Atlas of AI, Power, Politics and the Planetary Costs of Artificial Intelligence. And Kate Crawford is speaking with Eve St. James Aquino. Well, there's actually a really long history of using artificial intelligence for the classification and assessment of human faces. In fact, it goes all the way back to the 1960s, where a researcher by the name of Woody Bledslow did some of the first facial recognition studies funded by uh, the CIA, in fact. But since then, we've seen a proliferation of AI attempts to automatically detect, and I say that um, with scare quotes around it, um, race, gender, sexuality, beauty, and, and even criminality. Uh, so certainly in my research, I've, I've looked at the ways in which uh, companies have used these techniques in, in contexts like policing and targeted advertising. But now we're seeing the beauty industry um, line up to start using these tools. Um, of course, there are a lot of questions we might want to ask around how these systems are built and the ideas of beauty that they come prepackaged with. I guess the question is, how are they doing it? What information data sets are they using to say whether you're beautiful or not, or where you're more beautiful than the average? Well, there's all sorts of data sets that are being used in this space. Uh, One of the interesting things to note is that a lot of this data is simply scraped from the internet at large. And in some cases, uh, there are data sets of models' faces, which are seen to be sort of presumptively beautiful. In other cases, there are data sets made of just harvesting as many faces as possible and then attaching labels to them say, you know, this person is beautiful, this person is not. Um, and a lot of that labeling work 
is done by crowd workers in the global south who are being paid in some cases less than $2 US a day to you know label hundreds and thousands of images at, at high speed so it's a you know it's quite a, a ridiculous process that people are asked to do to try and classify people into these categories which of course are highly subjective and and highly cultural um so in this sense there's there's no real sort of scientific consensus uh, around these ideas um so you know you, you're really looking at something more like a, a crowdsourced idea of what images are seen as beautiful according to the internet that's really interesting because i think a lot of these apps obviously are used through smartphones and they have this air of sophistication like it's magic but what you're saying is there's a person behind um all these training data sets who's actually tasked to label and say this photo is beautiful this photo is perhaps ugly that's really interesting and there's a myth dispelled Absolutely. Although it's important to know that those things aren't happening in real time. So it's not as though as you upload a picture of yourself to an app and it, you know, gives you either a beautification workover or it classifies your face that this is being done by people as you're uploading. In fact, it's, it's all done by training these large scale systems using training data sets that are often up to five billion images large. So it's more of a logic that is produced at scale. Um, and these logics sort of come with inbuilt classificatory systems. And it's, it's really at that level of how those systems are trained that are then being applied to, say, your photograph. The other thing that is often hidden in these systems is that every time you upload a photograph to get your perfect selfie or for, you know, a, a system to tell you if you're beautiful or not, um, you are in fact contributing to these systems. Your photo is now part of that enormous training data set. And so this is part of the reason that we're starting to see, you know, companies find any trick in the book to try and get you to upload a picture of your face in order to create these gigantic troves of data that can be used in all sorts of ways that you have, of course, in, in many cases, not consented to at all. And you have written and spoken about ImageNet. And not a lot of people know about this process of labeling and annotation. Can you explain what ImageNet is and how it's influential in training or being used for a lot of AI programs? Mm. So ImageNet is really the gold standard of object recognition in artificial intelligence. In the way that ImageNet was created, it was actually created back in uh, 2009. And it completely shifted the field because it was one of the largest collections of annotated images ever made at that time. It was 14 million images strong. And it was also the first training data set to use this type of crowd labeling. So it used uh, Amazon Mechanical Turk, which at that time was a new service, uh, really staffed by people um, around the world doing piecework, digital piecework, if you will, essentially getting in some cases up to 60 images a minute and then labeling them, putting them into these pre-assigned categories that actually came from an earlier training data set called WordNet that was created in the 1980s at Princeton. Um, but in the case of ImageNet, they just took the nouns, 
with this idea that nouns are things that can be represented by pictures. Now, we could already start to ask questions about that. Because if we look at the sort of spectrum of nouns, some nouns uh, seem, you know, very pragmatic. This is a cup, this is a chair. But we start to see that the spectrum shift into concepts that are really very abstract, the concept of a debtor, for example, or, you know, the concept of a kleptomaniac. Um, and yet these terms are all still in this data set with people's faces attached to them. So um, working with the artist Trevor Paglin, we spent two years excavating this highly influential training data set that has gone on to influence thousands of production level computer vision systems around the world. It really is the most widely used training data set of the last decade. As we went through the layers of these images and labels, you know, we found absolute horrors, you know, terms that were racist, that were sexist, um, that were straight up defamatory. And yet with these labels came pictures of people's graduations or, you know, their family holidays or going out on the town with their friends, um, being labeled as, for example, alcoholic or slattern, um, an old term, um, which I hadn't seen in a while. So many things that, that I was just absolutely shocked that, you know, people pictures have been connected to. So we shared this research. And what was interesting is that, you know, it took off in an unexpected way. It was being covered very widely internationally. And then the research team decided to respond. And it, and it was actually interesting. They removed, um, really, I think it was close to 700,000 images. Many of these categories of people uh, just disappeared from the training data set. And this could be thought of as a victory. We're starting to see sort of the cleanup of these data sets. But at a deeper level, I think we have to ask a different question, which is, what are the politics of classification going on here? You know, what is this idea that you can label a person anything at all? I'm thinking here of the work of Simone Brown, who is a scholar in the United States who works on issues of race and politics. She uses this concept of digital epidermalization, this sort of application of race or gender to someone's face without the subject's agreement or even awareness that this is happening. Um, we're starting to see this across the board. And certainly in the case of beauty apps, you could think about it as a type of digital aestheticization. Um, this idea that, you know, people can become more beautiful by making them look more like an idea of a beautiful average, a sort of a generic human form of beauty, which is, again, decided um, elsewhere and then applied to you with all of its, you know, cultural specificities intact. So I think that's certainly the sort of um, work that we were doing and looking at data sets like ImageNet that we continue to do today. Uh, I have a research group called Knowing Machines, which uh, really studies all of the, the new data sets and, and looks at how they're coming along almost with these pre-baked assumptions built into them, which are then applied to every system that they touch. Thanks, Kate. And I think there's a lot to unpack there. And I just want to say that in my own research, I focus on physical beauty in the context of AI. And in my previous work, I looked at the ethics of pathologizing ugliness in cosmetic surgery, which frames unattractive features as if they are diseases that can be treated through surgery. And I've always had this complex that academics in my field consider the topic of physical beauty as silly or flimsy, a topic that no philosopher should take seriously. 
But the more I look into beauty apps as a case study, the more I find it philosophically, politically, and ethically fascinating. Um, physical beauty or attractiveness is such a complex concept. And here we have products saying that they have a mathematical formula to define it. And my question is, I am particularly interested in what you refer to in your book, Atlas of AI, as epistemological flattening of complexity. What makes this kind of simplification of AI appealing? And what exactly are we losing when we turn things into something computational? Well, this is actually a, a very profound question in terms of how machine learning works at its very core. So if we go back to sort of the, the sort of early years of the construction of machine learning systems, they are essentially trying to come up with a quantification of ideas and concepts that in some cases are just highly qualitative, subjective, in flux, and, and relational. Um, we could think about the idea of beauty here. You could also think about the idea of emotions, things that are very much about context and culture and who you're with and what's happening at the time. Yet we have machine learning systems that are attempting to codify these in, you know, extremely narrow and systematic ways. Um, one of the examples that I look at in Atlas of AI is, of course, emotional classification, which is commonly done in AI systems with the idea of six universal emotions. Now, you know, every study that has been done by a psychologist uh, in recent years has shown that this idea of universal emotions is immediately suspect, um, let alone the idea that we show what we're really feeling on the inside on our faces, and it can be easily classified. I mean, this, again, has been shown simply not to be scientifically accurate. Yet AI systems systems are deploying this type of flattening of human complexity and emotional richness and depth. So I think what we're losing here is, is really the sense of humans as multifarious, complex, changing creatures that are always in relation to each other and into relation to a wider environment and ecology. That is not simply how these systems are designed, and that type of complexity isn't what's being valued at the moment. So that's why we get this, this epistemological flattening, this sort of narrowing and, and desiccation of, of all of the things that go into being a human. Exactly. And I think, especially with the concept of beauty, where attractiveness is relational, it's social. There is more to attractiveness than the physical face. But all of a sudden, we have AI applications that are saying, we can score you based on a couple of your facial images. And that's really interesting. It's a literal flattening because it brings all these dimensions of attractiveness into two dimensions <laughs> that an AI software is supposed to be able to calculate. Exactly right. And I, and I think this is why the term bias is, is really too small to encapsulate what's going on. What you're looking at really is the production of sense, the imposition of a worldview, a, a way of seeing. And we can think about this as a mechanics of knowledge construction itself. Uh, this is something that the sociologist Corinne Noor Satina calls the epistemic machinery. And, and I think to see that requires tracking how these patterns of inequality, uh, these sort of assumptions of, you know, what constitutes the good or the beautiful really shape access to resources and opportunities, which then go on to shape data again. So you can see that there's, there's a reinforcing sort of circular loop here. That data, of course, is then extracted to then classify people further, which 
people then perceive as somehow being objective. So we could think about this as a statistical Ouroboros, a kind of self-reinforcing discrimination machine that amplifies social assumptions or stereotypes under the guise of technical neutrality. You're listening to The Philosopher's Zone. I'm David Rutledge, and this week, Eve St. James Aquino is talking beauty apps and AI with Kate Crawford, the author of Atlas of AI. And if Eve sounds a little familiar, it could be because he and I spoke on the previous episode of The Philosopher's Zone. That was a conversation about ugliness and what happens when looking less than conventionally attractive becomes framed as a medical condition requiring medical intervention. You can find that episode and all of our past episodes on the ABC Listen app. I want to go back to what you talked about when it comes to classification of gender and race, because a lot of PD apps are now claiming they can be more accurate if you provide us with your gender, your race, or ethnicity. And these social categories are fraught. They're really complex. Can we really rely on AI technologies and developers to capture the complex meaning of human categories and classification? Well, absolutely not. And you can see this when you study the back end of AI systems, which is, you know, what my work has been doing for, uh, sort of the, the last decade or so. Um, is you start to really dig into what are the ideas of race and gender that are being used here. Now, of course, you know, there's a scientific consensus that, you know, race isn't something that is biologically encoded. Uh, but in the AI world, we're starting to see, you know, these ideas of appearance as destiny, you know, where our faces become our fate. Uh, I, I've called this in the past the sort of phrenological impulse of AI, this desire to categorize people based on their appearance. And, and what's extraordinary is just how ridiculous these categories are. For example, some systems use a, uh, a five-part category of race, and others use a, a sort of a skin color range that they will sort of apply and then assume this, this equals a, a sort of a racial delineation. And many just use binary gender categories, which of course, you know, feels deeply out of date these days. Um, in fact, the researcher Os Keys has done a terrific paper on automatic gender detection and shows that 95% of research in the AI field treats gender as binary. And the vast majority of these systems that are then built understand gender as something that's immutable and sort of physiological. And this just goes against decades of research that shows that gender is cultural, relational, and historical. So we're really looking at a sort of a deep classificatory harm of allocating people into these identity categories without their consent in the first place, in many cases without even realizing that they're being categorized or that these categorizations can have material consequences in terms of hiring, in terms of how they're being assessed at work, or even in things such as the healthcare system or the criminal justice system. That's really interesting. And I think for some people, they might hear beauty apps. I'll never use beauty apps. Why should I care? But a lot of the assumptions that we are talking about right now is also something that we should be concerned with when it comes to AI applications in contexts such as policing, human resources, and hiring. Can you speak more about that sort of assumptions that are informing um, AI applications in these other domains? 
Well, I mean, it's interesting because, of course, so many of these issues that we're seeing in beauty apps really relate more widely. So not only is it, you know, beautiful to whom, you might ask, but, you know, for what gender category that you've been applied to. So you'll see that many of these AI beauty apps will have uh, two gender systems. Um, they'll be like, are you looking for male beauty or female beauty? Uh, the same goes for apps that will you know, modify your photograph in particular ways that are sort of deemed to be more attractive, highly gendered, highly normative, um, really highly boring in a lot of ways too around sort of what beauty really constitutes here. Um, so it's, it's very common for people to see that as, as, as being trivial or not particularly, you know, relevant or just something that you might do as a lark. But when we start to see those classificatory systems applied in the workplace or applied in criminal justice, um, you can start to see how dangerous they become. For example, um, there are systems that are used now to detect people's emotional state that are being used in um, uh, police stops in the United States. Now, Many researchers have shown that the emotional states that are being applied to people of a white skin complexion versus a dark skin complexion are very different, whereby black people are seen as being more angry or upset than white people. Now, this immediately has impacts in a policing context where we already see racialized policing practices. So I think we have to be extremely concerned when we start to see these assumptions um, about what people's faces are worth or what they mean or how they can be translated, being then fed into really complex and, you know, historically unequal social institutions like employment or housing or policing. Um, and, you know, it, it, it can sound, you know, sometimes quite extraordinary in Australia that this is happening. But right now in the United States, these kinds of facial and emotion detection systems are being built into public housing uh, blocks, into places where people live, where they have no ability to say, Absolutely not. You know, I don't want to be living with a system like this in my corridor, tracking me every time I leave my apartment. Yet this is actually happening. So I think in, in many cases, the more we look at the logics underlying these systems, you can see how they can perpetuate inequality and can actually cause material harm. And so far we have discussed problems and harms, but could we indulge perhaps a utopian feature instead of promoting or upholding narrow beauty ideals that AI will bring about new, more diverse and inclusive ideals because people's photos and the way they retouch and play with their images might feed back into the data set. Is it possible to have a utopian feature where AI promotes beauty diversity or is that really asking for too much? Well, I I tend to sort of find that the sort of binaristic idea of AI either producing a dystopia or a utopia to be unhelpful. And that in many ways, it's, it's more interesting to look at the sort of the granularity, the texture of life that shifts when these systems become dominant. And certainly when it comes to beauty ideals, it might mean that we're starting to see a different set of ideals start to emerge and be applied. Um, you can see this in, you know, sites like DeviantArt, where you're starting to see the rise of people who look sort of 
elvish and, and are sort of then going and getting forms of surgery to have pointy ears or particular facial features. You know, you'll have this, um, you know, otherworldly ideas around beauty start to emerge from generative AI systems that really allow you to generate a picture of a person who could look like anything at all. But when we start to see that then encoded into the normative structures of beauty, which is to say, you should like this, you should, you know, appear this way, or you should get surgery to look the following way. Um, that's when we can start to see sort of, if you will, that sort of the sharp end of, of these kinds of ideals that until we start to say that, you know, beauty itself is a constantly shifting construct that has an enormous industry attached to it that is trying to extract a lot of your money to make you look a certain way. Um, I think the question of, you know, whether it's one look or another is less interesting to me rather than looking at the actual machinery that underlies it and the way that it actually creates these hierarchies of human value. And I think going to my last um, question, the appeal of AI to perform tasks as complex as saying you're beautiful or not, um, the appeal is that there's a myth that AI is better than humans and AI is supposed to be more accurate. And you've spoken a lot about artificial intelligence neither being artificial nor intelligent. And I was wondering if you could explain that um, a little bit more. Absolutely. I mean, this is why I think the term artificial intelligence presents somewhat of a trap, is that it gives this sort of this sense of something that is science fiction, that is immaterial and objective and simply calculations in the cloud. But in actual fact, you know, these systems are profoundly material, which is to say that, you know, they're made by people, they're trained by people actually labeling data sets. Uh, and of course, they have enormous environmental consequences and a huge carbon footprint that, of course, goes somewhat outside of our discussion of beauty apps today, but is a very important part of how these AI systems are designed, which is that they really have an enormous carbon footprint. So in this sense, we can think about these as deeply material technologies. On the other hand, we could think about this concept of intelligence, that somehow these systems are deemed to be more objectively intelligent than human beings. Well, in fact, this is a very different form of calculation, if you will. It's, it's very different to human intelligence, which is, again, embodied. It is relational. We are in environments. Uh, this idea that we have a form of intelligence that is completely separate to our embodied selves really takes us back to Cartesian dualism, the idea of like the brain in a, in a vat. Um, and I think we have to be extremely suspect. In fact, if we called these systems large-scale statistical pattern recognition, we might find that people would be less mystified uh, and less, uh, I think, taken in by the idea that these are, are, are magical systems. Um, working with the historian of science, Alex Campolo, uh, I wrote a paper around this idea of enchanted determinism, uh, this very long-standing association um, of AI as being somehow magical or alien or superhuman, yet also deterministic, able to perform calculations that are profoundly accurate, predictions that will be shown to be true. And I think this phenomenon of, of systems that are at once enchanted and deterministic is what we're seeing right now, particularly with large-scale artificial intelligence, that people trust these systems to be, you know, more than human intelligence because we're not looking behind the curtain, because we're not looking at these mechanisms of their construction, the way that they 
bring these classificatory systems that in many cases predate us by centuries, these sort of phrenological ideas of the face being the window to the soul, uh, and, and also in many cases ideas that are deeply stereotypical and deeply discriminatory. So I think in many ways sort of fighting against the phenomenon of enchanted determinism is, is one of the things that really face us as a society as we more and more will be using AI interfaces, be that, you know, GPT or stable diffusion to create images and create texts, is start to sort of really kind of tap into that skepticism, that set of questions around, well, who made this and, and who really benefits from this and who might be harmed? Kate Crawford. Her book is Atlas of AI, Power, Politics and the Planetary Costs of Artificial Intelligence. And Kate Crawford was speaking there with Eve St. James Aquino, who's a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Wollongong. As always, more info on the website and you can stream or download this and all of our past programs on the ABC Listen app. This has been The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge. Thanks so much for joining us. Bye for now.